So before moving into book nine proper, I just want to reflect on patricide, on why this crime or alleged crime is at the center of the novel, as opposed to the crime at the heart of crime and punishment, which is the murder of a louse, the murder of a woman who, who Raskolnikov does know, but with whom he doesn't share intimate ties of blood. Now, of course, Dimitri in this book has vehemently denied, vehemently denies that he has killed his father. He cries, not guilty of that blood, I am not guilty. Of my father's blood, I am not guilty. He keeps repeating himself, right? He's so distressed by the thought. I wanted to kill him, but I am not guilty. His words immediately after the mysterious ellipses that God must have protected him also point to his innocence. Marshal Grushenka has a profound conviction uh, about Dmitri's innocence. Nevertheless, Dmitri is accused of parricide. And he confesses that he wanted to kill his father. He is guilty of desiring murder, which by gospel standards makes him a murderer. And we see throughout history that there is something particularly horrific about the killing of a family member. In scripture, the first murder is a, is, is a, is a fratricide when Cain kills Abel. This, this violation and profound violation of these incredibly close relationships. Of course, the Orstia is concerned with the question of matricide. Shakespeare's Claudius kills his brother Hamlet, an act that torments Hamlet the Younger. In his Reflections on the Revolution in France, Edmund Burke critiques the reductiveness of the modern imagination that sees all murder as alike. He writes, quote, regicide and parricide and sacrilege are but fiction of superstition, corrupting jurisprudence by destroying its simplicity. The murder of a king or a queen or a bishop or a father are only common homicide. And if the people are by any chance or in any way gainers by it, a sort of homicide, much the most pardonable. So here, Burke is really satirizing uh, this modern idea that all murder is equal. And there's a sense in which that's, that's right. Uh, I killed my father. I killed a stranger. Both of those are acts of murder. In both cases, I've, I've, taken, I've taken a life. So, so in some sense, they're the same. But there's something in the imagination and, and in, in the heart and, and perhaps in the mind, too, right, that sees the act of killing a father, killing a family member, yeah, as, as more horrific than just your average murderer. And for certainly for Burke and for Dostoevsky, I don't think that patricide is a homicide like others. And one, one uh, moment I think that, that suggests this for, for, for Dostoevsky is when, when Dimitri thinks that he's killed Gregory, he planned to shoot himself at dawn, but he says that if he had actually killed his father, he would not have waited for dawn. Yeah, he, would have, he would have killed himself right away. It seems as if right, patricide is a much more serious and repulsive act. Dimitri wouldn't be able to live with himself had he actually committed the crime. Dimitri even says rather, even says rather wildly, the devil killed my father casting this act in spiritual terms. And there is something profoundly devilish about killing the father. Satan's assault on Adam and Eve in Paradise Lost is an assault on the father. Attack the father by attacking the children. Nathan Rosen, a scholar, explains that for Dostoevsky, quote, the father is 
as the center of a moral order extending outwardly from the family to the state and even further still to encompass the world. From father, one should make the transition to czar and then to God. Father is therefore an organism reflecting in miniature the moral order of the universe. The importance of the family is that it instills in children at an impressionable age respect for tradition and the moral order. That's the end of the quote. So an attack on the father is an attack on moral order itself, on the traditional social and religious values. Now, of course, Dostoevsky is acutely aware of the reality of bad fathers. He does not write a story about an ideal father who educates his children in the way of virtue and who then suffers a tragic and profoundly unjust death. The buffoonish, buffoonish centralist Fyodor shamefully neglects his children. He rapes Lizaveta. He is entangled in a love triangle with his eldest son. He's a terrible, terrible father. About the only thing good we can say about him as a father, at least, is that he doesn't systematically abuse his children in the way that the parents in Yvonne anecdotes don't. As far as we know, Fyodor hasn't, didn't smear excrement on any of his children. Dostoevsky sees the family itself uh, in a state of crisis, the family in Russia in, in the 19th century. Rosen writes, quote, Dostoevsky was oppressed by the fact that in the 19th century Russia, the family was disintegrating. Fathers no longer knew what values to transmit to their children. In, in some sense, this, this sort of disintegration of the, of the family sounds similar to modern moralists' concerns about the, the disintegration of, of the American family, that the family is falling apart, and that has social consequences. And for Dostoevsky, there's this disintegration of values in, in Russia. There's the rise of nihilism in the 19th century with its assault on all traditional beliefs as fundamentally inadequate. Think of someone like Bazarov from, from Fathers and Children, uh, that, that, that everything is up for critique. So what does a father pass on to his to his to his children is there a moral tradition that that whole moral tradition is coming under assault so for Dostoevsky the father has a profound moral responsibility but there's a moral crisis in the family and a moral crisis in society that is affecting the family but despite the failure of the father that that we see in brothers k the attack on the father, even if it's only in the mind, as Dimitri says, in the mind or the mind of the will or the emotions, as Dimitri declares that it is, even that is still horrific, uh, perhaps even satanic. Devil killed my father. All right, so on to book nine proper. Uh, I think this book is absolutely brilliant just from, from a literary perspective, that Dostoevsky nails the interrogation of Dimitri. It's just a masterful scenes between him and his examiners. It's tense and it's vivid. Dostoevsky communicates Dimitri's vacillation from expansiveness to indignation and the interrogator's suspicion and subtle communication with each other. They can exchange glances if Dimitri doesn't see uh, the sense that they're closing in on him and they have him right where they right where they want him. Um, it's really quite brilliant. And it's worth pointing out here that Dostoevsky himself was actually subject to interrogation. 
might remember that he was part of the Petrescu Circle, which was a radical socialist group um, in, in Russia. And its members were arrested in 1848, 1848, that great year of revolution across all of Europe in which suddenly people uh, rise up against monarchs and uh, demand for liberal reforms. This wave of, rev of revolutions was of course terrifying to the Russian czar, suddenly very concerned about your own uh, stability and security of your own of your own rule. So there was a pretty dramatic response to these revolutions, uh, uh, a strong um, cap down on on any kind of revolutionary thought, revolutionary groups. And that includes the Petrushki circle of which Dostoevsky was a member. So these groups are, they're arrested, they are subject to interrogation, sentenced to death, and then theatrically spared at the last minute. Instead, their sentence is um, exile in Siberia, uh, imprisonment actually uh, in, in Siberia. But, during this time that Dostoevsky is before he is exiled um, and before since his death, he is interrogated. Joseph Frank, Dostoevsky's biographer, writes, quote, called in four more times for interrogation and presented with a further list of questions, Dostoevsky had to pick his way carefully among the dangerous pitfalls. And we can watch him trying not to be trapped in an outright lie or seeming to hold back information while guarding against any utterance that might prove injurious, injurious to himself or to others. So Dostoevsky actually behaves uh, deliberately, carefully, uh, with some with some cunning. And um, indeed, as a witness, Dostoevsky was described as quote clever, independent, cunning, stubborn. Somewhat different, um, I think, then than the way that Dmitri behaves. But Dostoevsky has so has this intimate and practical experience with with interrogations, uh, and I, so I, I just it's really powerful and brilliant. The right, Dimitri's uh, three torments. Now, Dimitri, um, unlike Dostoevsky, who Frank says quote maintained his reserve and dignity to the end, uh, Dimitri is. But perhaps, perhaps maintains a kind of dignity, but Dmitri is not a particularly clever or cunning under interrogation. He holds back crucial information, and then when he finally reveals his secret that he's had the thousand along, it's not particularly persuasive to his examiners. But I actually, I do think that there is some kind of dignity for him at the end of this torment in that he, he finally finds the resurrection that he longs for. So the, the, the rebirth and the renewal that he is searching for in book eight, he finds it here in book nine. Uh, at, at, at least he's on, now he's on the absolutely right path towards it. Um, sure that it has begun for him. Dimitri in, in this book, I think, joins Alyosha and Zosima rather than the Grand Inquisitor. So Grand Inquisitor, Nivon, um, with, with Zosima, 
these represent the the polarities of the novel. These sort of options for human existence, you know, options for ways of being in the world. I think Dimitri definitively joins Alyosha and Zosima. Now, Dimitri hasn't really seemed torn between the Grand Inquisitor and Zosima, not in the way Alyosha and Yvonne are. Dimitri, Dimitri actually longs for order. He doesn't reject God's order. Both Yvonne and Alyosha at points reject God's order. Dimitri simply does not have the strength to rise on his own. He cannot become a new Dimitri without, in what uh, what is a rather uh, tragic hero-sounding phrase, without a blow of fate. And fate deals Dimitri a severe blow. He's tormented psychologically and spiritually in this book. He has to expose his baseness, uh, and he is he's literally stripped naked. He has to confess, right? Strip naked, right? literally strip naked. Uh, spiritually, he has to confess to a level of deliberate cunning that he is profoundly ashamed of. He has to reveal himself as, as a thief. This malice, this, this deliberation, it's that would that what Dimitri is so profoundly ashamed of, and which he doesn't want the examiners to know, and the examiners don't seem to really understand why he's so distraught by this uh, right, deliberate deceit of Katarina, this deliberate withholding of half of the money um, right that he that he that he took from her, keep carrying it carrying it around right in his little in his little pouch there. Yeah, the Dimitri, he's impetuous and and passionate, but in general, not malicious, not not cunning. But this moment uh, actually shows him capable of that kind of cunning, but profoundly ashamed. So he has to reveal this. He has to strip away uh, all the the coverings, right, that he's trying to... Uh, he, well, he has to right, he has to bring to light that which he has been trying to hide, that which he has been keeping in in the dark. The devil is actually mentioned over and over again during Dimitri's torments. So I think is perhaps right a suggestion of who is truly tormenting Dimitri here. You may have seen this in the footnote, uh, but according to traditional Orthodox belief, a soul on its way to heaven after death is actually tormented by evil spirits trying to drag it down to hell. This is a reversal of the onion story in which a soul in hell is drawn upwards. Of course, right, at least until she starts kicking the other souls around her. Dimitri, on his path upwards, is undergoing this kind of torment, three torments that perhaps parallel the three temptations of Christ. At the end of this torment, Dimitri falls asleep and has a dream. I think this dream is meant to parallel Alyosha's dream at the wedding of Cana. This beautiful moment in Brothers K, it's one of my favorite moments in which you have Christ coming to people in their joy. The wedding feast that becomes the, the wedding feast at the end of time. Now, Dimitri, on the other hand, in his dream sees suffering. The burned village, the withered woman, the starving child. Alyosha dreams of joy, Dimitri of suffering. Yet for both brothers, their dreams are redemptive. And just as Zosima comes to Alyosha, Grushenka comes to Dmitri. The dream Grushenka tells Dmitri 
And I am with you too. I won't leave you now. I will go with you for the rest of my life. Her words have an extraordinary effect on Dmitri. In response, the dear, deeply felt words of Grushenka came from somewhere near him, and his whole heart blazed up and turned towards some sort of life. And he wanted to live and live, to go on and on along some path towards the new beckoning light. Now, is this, is this light here the rising sun, the setting sun? We don't know, but it is a beckoning light. Dimitri is drawn to the light. Note the indefiniteness here. Some sort of new life, some path. Dimitri says, I had a good dream, gentlemen. He said, somehow strangely, with a sort of new face, as if lit up with joy. There's something indefinite about this transformation, something mysterious. When Alyosha has his moment of resurrection, he feels something as firm and immovable as this heavenly vault descend into his soul. Some sort of idea enters his mind. He says, someone visited my soul in this hour. Resurrection has a some or sort of quality, a quality that is there but can't quite be defined. Dostoevsky doesn't, doesn't want to put uh, precise labels on what is happening to his characters, what is happening to Alyosha, what is happening to Dimitri. wants to suggest, though, right, something profoundly transformative in them. So Dimitri, finally, right, actually moving to Alyosha's side, moving, moving to, we see also to, to Zosima um, in, in action, um, also in language. There's actually so much linguistic, linguistic echoing that takes place in Brothers K. Characters uh, take on, adopt each other's terms course, already seen Alyosha do this with, with Yvonne. Dimitri in this book actually echoes Father Zosima. So if you remember back in book two, Karamazovs are all meeting in, in Zosima's room to discuss the conflict between Theodore and Dimitri. Um, and as they're waiting for Dimitri to show up, Yvonne begins to talk with the monks about his article and about this idea of the eventual, the transformation of society into the Christian church. And Zosima says, quote, awaiting its complete transfiguration from society, which is still an almost pagan organization into one universal and sovereign church. And so be it, so be it, if only at the end of time. After the interrogation, and Dimitri has been put under arrest. Under arrest, he cries out, "We are all cruel. We are all monsters. We all make people weep, mothers and nursing babies. But all of it, let it be settled here and now. Of all, I am the lowest vermin. So be it." So here, Dimitri, embracing his lowliness, echoes Zosima's cry, "So be it. So be it." Is actually the title of that chapter back in book two. So be it. Now, Dimitri is not saying so be it to the transformation of society into the church, which is something that will happen, if not now, at the end of time. This is a sort of, uh, an eschatological submission that Zosima um, makes here. But 
but he's saying so be it to his own weakness. But that recognition of one's weakness, of one's lowliness, is a part of Zosimian wisdom. Remember that Zosima says the monk must enter the monastery because he knows that he is worse than those in the world. Dimitri's cry here has something of the Pauline. I am the chief of sinners. I am the lowest of the vermin. Dimitri has to acknowledge his own vileness, which he has done before. He knows that he's base. He knows that he's he's torn between his higher self and and his baseness in his confession to Alyosha, uh, Sodom, and Madonna. But here in this moment, he's actually able to embrace suffering as a way out of vileness. He says, for men such as I, a blow is needed a blow of fate to catch them as with a noose and bind them by an external force. Never, never would I have risen all by myself. But now the thunder has struck. I accept the torment of accusation and my disgrace before all. I want to suffer and be purified by suffering. So Dmitri cannot simply change geographical locations or even marry Grushenka. He must take on in his Osimian manner suffering. He says, I accept punishment, not because I killed him, but because I wanted to kill him and might well have killed him. Dimitri here realizes that even his desires are problematic. This is, this is the first step in the eschatological movement, right, in which all of society is transformed into the church, is for the individual person who recognize his own baseness, take on that suffering, embrace that suffering. This is how paradise will be will be brought about. So Dimitri is beginning the process that will culminate at the end of time with the utter transformation of society. Now back in Zosima's cell, Ivan and the monks were talking in that same conversation about the regeneration of the criminal. The argument was that the church was actually necessary for that regeneration. The state can only provide a mechanical punishment. It can't provide a punishment that actually leads to regeneration, to rebirth, to renewal. Now, Dimitri is not guilty of this particular crime, but, but he does have criminal desires. He is in need of regeneration, but he doesn't get that regeneration through the mechanical punishment of the state. And in part, it is this, it's through the, the torment of the interrogation that he comes to the realization of the kind of person that he is and of his need for, uh, well, right, his need to take on and, and embrace suffering. That, that's a part of it. But he hasn't really yet been punished formally by the state. He hasn't even been, he hasn't even been tried yet. But what Dimitri does here in this moment is basically live by, adopt a Christian standard. So he chooses to think of himself um, as a criminal from the standard of the church, and from the standard of Christ saying, right, I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So Dimitri is actually holding himself up to this standard, to a standard that transcends society's understanding, society's judgment of the criminal. It's a, it's a 
It's a deeper and more profound standard by which Dimitri is choosing to live his life and is choosing to adopt salvation. So he's in this particular moment, he's he's demonstrating for us the way in which the church can regenerate the criminal um, rather than the state regenerate the criminal even though Dimitri is not here interacting with anybody formally from the church, but he, but he's, he's enacting a Christian principle of, of, of virtue here. Uh, and it's uh, by, by, by submitting himself to this, it's a very high standard of, of guilt, the desire to kill, not just the actual act of killing, but it's this very high standard and it's holding himself to this very high standard that is an essential part of Dimitri's regeneration. And for Dostoevsky, uh, ultimately for the regeneration of all of society uh, at the end of time. So something at least in Dimitri that's at least pointing to the eschatological, if not working to bring it about.